You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. My name's Christina and on today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Roberts to discuss recurrent UTIs. Now, Matt is a urologist in Brisbane. He has both public and private appointments, consults and operates across a number of private hospitals here in Brizzy and does have a particular interest in complex urological infections. So it's great to have you here on The Good GP, Matt, to discuss this topic today. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. So Matt, let's jump into it. And I guess I want to start with the basics and just kind of talk around definitions, what actually defines recurrent UTIs and what are some of the causes of this? Yeah, it's a probably not a straightforward answer. So the, the textbook answer is that there's uh, symptomatic infection is number one, and it's also the time span. So usually three within a year or two within six months. And the reason that I say that it's uh, tricky is because a lot of people think that the culture is the absolute gold standard um, and is 100% accurate. But I think we're finding more and more as time goes on that this isn't the case. And it was actually developed on a study of 50 patients with catheters 50 years ago or something like that. Uh, And so we've got a long way to go before we actually get an accurate gold standard. So one thing we've adopted more and more is actually Uh, using culture as an adjunct, but um, if a patient has symptoms that are very suggestive of a urinary tract infection, suprapubic discomfort, dysuria, frequency, that sort of thing, and they're culture negative, they can probably still be treated as a urinary tract infection. Some of the causes in terms of breaking it down as a structure, I would think of it related to the patient. And so the probably the three big groups, one is uh, younger premenopausal women who are sexually active the other is older women postmenopausal and then the other group are those with a anatomical or functional abnormality that can either be male or female uh, so we can go into details of those but we can keep it general as well if you like yeah great and yeah that's a really interesting point we're kind of drilled into us. Um, well, I feel like I was through my medical training and even early hospital years, if the culture doesn't grow anything, don't treat it. So it's interesting to kind of have that shifting paradigm, I guess. So let's talk about risk factors then. What actually makes someone more susceptible to recurrent UTIs? So I think if we go to those three big groups that I mentioned, But also, if you try and simplify things, I think about the local factors, but also the systemic factors. And I think the systemic factors are very straightforward and things you probably come across every day and mostly relate to immunosuppression, um, but also other things that may cause glucosuria, so diabetes, uh, of which the Flozin medications are a real thing that we've noticed recently to be a, a probably a causative factor and definitely a propagating factor with infections and you know those other systemic things that you you would be aware of locally we look at really functional issues so for instance if there's a if you think about a male with a, a prostate uh, that has obstructive voiding symptoms then uh, if they've got obstructive voiding symptoms, it's going to be difficult for those bugs to potentially get out. But also they are at risk of nidus. So whether there's a stone formed in the bladder or the kidney or or those uh, potential causes, if it's polymicrobial, maybe if there's been pelvic surgery or others, then you might need to think of a fistula or something else weird and wonderful. 
and they're the weird and wonderfuls. The very common ones are that, uh, you know, particularly postmenopausal women, the loss of estrogenization of the vagina disrupts the local flora to mean that it's mostly pathogenic bacteria rather than normal flora uh, taking up real estate or, or as my ID colleagues would say, you know, there's less selection pressure. So that's why there's more pathogenic organisms locally. And then whether they're sexually active or not, it's a, a risk factor for introduction and then perineal hygiene, use of pads and other things. And of course, uh, use of indwelling or suprapubic catheters uh, as a source as well. Yeah, so lots of different things really that can contribute. Certainly um, my experience as a GP see some of these things quite commonly as well. The kind of increasing use of SGLT2 inhibitors has definitely caused problems for some patients with recurrent UTIs or recurrent vulvovaginitis as well. And, you know, the, the challenges around sort of pad use when there's comorbid incontinence and then vulval irritation and what have you, which can all sort of play in and go together. So it can be, like you say, it's not really straightforward <laughs> answers, are they? You kind of think that these should be just textbook exam type questions, but there's lots of factors to be considering for these patients. So so when we've got a patient who is having recurrent UTIs, what things should we be thinking about as the GP in terms of initial workup? Um, and I guess, does that differ between those groups of people you discussed before, kind of the younger versus older patient, you know, the male versus female? Yeah, I think it's, a again, you know, we, there can be a simple approach or a complex approach. A simple approach, I would think, is the main point of a workup is to look for either a nidus or to look for a functional problem. And so obviously the, the multiple urine test is helpful to determine if it's persistence of infection or whether there's reinfection or what we would call polymicrobial. Uh, and then if there's a functional issue, an ultrasound renal tract is an excellent screening tool for that. Um, in, a, in a younger uh, patient, you know, you would very much expect this to be normal, but occasionally we see young women with chronic urinary retention and other things. Uh, and also, but particularly in the older patient, older women are more likely to have chronic urinary retention than younger women. Same with men. Uh, and looking at other possible aspects. And I think if there's other suggestions of red flags, uh, then that should also be addressed appropriately. So say, for instance, if there's persisting hematuria despite the infection being treated or even if you want to be very conservative if there was hematuria with the infection and they had risk factors for urothelial carcinoma then uh, urine cytology ctivp and onward referral would be worth thinking about because uh, women do suffer worse cancer outcomes than men with bladder cancer and we, we're, we're thinking that this i suppose detection aspect might be a contributing factor yeah, definitely. That's a great reminder. So what about moving in then to management? I want to start by kind of going back through the basics of the non-pharmacological, you know, the general advice that we should be considering for these patients who do experience recurrent UTIs. This is a, a very important aspect. And, and I think if you were to Google this, you would come up with a hundred different things. So we try to uh, limit um, our recommendations to where there might be evidence or expert consensus. I think that you know, common sense prevails in, in this particular scenario. So uh, lifestyle interventions, you know, lots of fluid intake. And the, the reason behind that is the more you flush out the bladder, 
but also the more you dilute the urine, uh, the less likely it is going to be able to proliferate or, or impregnate in the bladder. So good fluid intake uh, is very important. Other aspects, I think, relate to what you think the cause might be. So say, for instance, if it's postcoital in a younger woman, then uh, I think uh, postcoital voiding, and I tell them actually to void twice and drink lots of fluid because, again, a lot of people are told, oh, you just, just void once and that's it. But if you void five mils, well, then that's probably not doing too much. So trying to maximise those as much as possible. If it was, uh, you know, you think hygiene might be an issue if they're pad wearing or bed bound and that sort of thing, try and improve the showering, more frequent pad changes and those sorts of things. Uh, and then, of course, controlling uh, systemic risk factors, like I mentioned before. Great. Thanks. And I mean, that's stuff that we can really be talking about with patients. I think I find a lot of women want to always wear pads as kind of this backup just in case and kind of, you know, trying to get them to consider alternatives that might be available now in terms of sort of reusable or washable absorbent underwear or things that are less irritant or, you know, using a barrier protection or actually kind of getting them to really think about whether they need to wear the pads all the time or whether they can cut back some of that pad use or manage the other issues like the incontinence or what have you that might be contributing to that desire to kind of or the feeling that they need to wear pads all the time. Absolutely. And and there's much more options in terms of reusable continence aids than there used to be. Um, they're probably also better for the environment. Um, but you also brought up a good point in that um, if there's a concurrent contributing factor, so the common one is overactive bladder or stress incontinence, trying to address or optimise that minimising the leakage or minimising the stasis should also improve the infection outcome. And it's definitely not non-pharmacological, but just thinking about, you know, I always hear about this, you know, the cranberry and that it has people sort of talk about some evidence in terms of reducing the bacterial adherence, I think, is the mechanism behind it to the bladder wall. Is there any evidence for the use of something like cranberry um, in preventing recurrent UTIs? So I was going to include that in the pharmacological because I'm a simple surgeon uh, and, and and we have now a bit of a, a array of options. What I would say is that it's, it's worth uh, separating out prevention versus treatment. So if someone has a symptomatic infection, they should have a, a decent course of antibiotics. ETG would say three days. Many women I see say that's not enough. So I think you can use your discretion as to the length of the treatment that's used. Obviously, you know, probably more than a week or two weeks, you know, four weeks, of course, you know, it's not necessary. So, you know, I think worth considering the symptoms in that acute episode treatment. Then once you get the treatment happening, then you move into the prevention phase. Um, and the prevention phase, um, there's been a recent randomized trial from the UK that tested um, hiprex, um, so, you know, hiperamethamine, uh, compared to uh, low-dose antibiotics. And they found that the hiperex was not inferior to low-dose antibiotics, um, and there were differing side effect profiles between the treatments. And so we actually recently published a, a review of all the different guidelines worldwide. And uh, when it comes to pharmacological management, there was actually no consensus due to essentially poor evidence. Whereas this randomised trial of Hiprex really places it as the number one non-antibiotic pharmacological agent if you can use. And so you should be able to take that on a regular basis. It's quite affordable. It's over the counter. 
and it's good. And then if you can also take it with vitamin C, that can increase the acidity of the urine, it makes it more effective. And that's a tip I got from Professor Caroline Dowling in Melbourne. So that's my staple, that's my go-to. And then other agents, so you mentioned cranberry is one. If you're going to take that, use it as a capsule. We, we try to discourage cranberry juice because of the sugar content. Uh, and then other options include D-mannose as another one. I would say both of those have uh, mixed evidence. And so we can't really say with any certainty that one is better than the other. Uh, and then other options such as probiotics and other complementary medicines. My usual approach with that is, well, if it doesn't cause you significant side effects and doesn't cost you a lot of money or disadvantage you, then it can't hurt. So then in terms of antibiotic prophylaxis, then when is that appropriate and, and what sort of your recommendations around that? I think it depends again on the scenario. So, uh, and it also depends on your patient. So if you think you're going to have a compliant or, or sensible patient um, who has minimal allergies or, or other issues, then there are different approaches you can use. The, the post-coital antibiotic is probably the most commonly used one. Talking to other colleagues, people use actually Hiprex or Cranberry in that scenario as well uh, on a sort of PRN measure. Then the other option is a sort of a low-dose prophylaxis for, say, three months and then stop. And the, the thought behind that is to uh, reduce reinfection, allowing the urethelium to heal so that the chance of, I suppose, damage or reinfection is less. Uh, and then for some people, it gets to the point that they actually need continuous prophylaxis, at which point we would consider cycling different antibiotics. Within the, the trials that have been done on low-dose prophylaxis, it has been shown to be very effective, but the consistent theme amongst all of them is that antimicrobial resistance skyrockets when you do use it. And again, if you think about selection pressure, it's basically killing off all the low-hanging fruit, meaning that the only things that emerge after that are the resistant organisms. And once they start to uh, emerge, and we often see ESBL and other infections in these recurrent UTIs, they're quite problematic to treat. Yeah, that's a really good consideration. So I guess from what I'm picking up, there's really a stepwise approach. Firstly, you're wanting to make sure you've got really good advice around that lifestyle factors, the non-pharmacological things we can do to reduce risk factors, then thinking about the non-antibiotic, I guess, interventions with the Hiprex and the cranberry. And it would really only be if that failed, would you say, that then you go to the next step? Would that be your... Yes. The other thing I forgot to mention, Christina, and I'll blame you for, for putting me down the cranberry path, the number one thing that I recommend to almost every single postmenopausal woman is topical estrogen. It is has the strongest evidence base, and if you ask any urologist ever, they'll say it's the number one thing that definitely makes a difference. And then the, the usual discussion I have, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is that while we can start it, it might actually be worth seeing their GP for a discussion on the potential implications uh, as well as the uh, uh, optimal way of administering it, whether that's a cream or a pessary, whether they should start twice a week from the start or whether they should have a more intensive start and then taper away. And it often brings in then the question about history of breast cancer or other, other cancers. Uh, and I refer them to the RANSCOL guidelines and other international societies that state that Topical estrogen in most of those states is safe, but if unsure, then uh, consult the oncologist. 
definitely. Um, and I think most GPs, it's bread and butter area for us um, and certainly, you know, would be initiating a lot of women on topical estrogen or non-hormonal equivalents actually as well. So yeah, great points and really like that kind of breakdown in, in terms of an approach. So what about as a GP, when should I really be thinking about calling you up or not calling you, I'm, I'm sure you don't want my phone calls all the time, but um, at least sending a referral letter for a patient and getting them seen by a urologist. I mean, I, I think GPs are, are very well trained and, you know, a stepwise approach like this, if, if it's not working, contact us and we'd be happy to see them. I think if you, and again, depends on the type of infection or the type of patient you have, if you think that there's a functional or an anatomical abnormality, then refer to us sooner. If you think that it's a, a, a recurrent simple infection or you need a bit of time to start the estrogen, which often takes at least three or four months to, to see an effect, then do all those things, do the simple things. But I think if you're at the point that you need to start giving regular prophylaxis, uh, then it's worth us seeing them. Great. And would you say there's any other sort of red flags, even like going back in terms of sort of the assessment or the type of bacteria that's grown on, you know, the culture or like, is is there anything that kind of should alert us earlier on, even before we start that stepwise approach? Um, what I would say is as much as possible, try to get a clean catch urine. And I know that's a really simple and silly thing to say, but the amount of people we've seen treated on contaminated urines potentially with you know resistant bugs that are on the skin and not in the urine is very common. I also appreciate that it's very difficult to always get a clean catch urine um, depending on the body habitus and that sort of thing. So it might even be worth if you do have something resistant before considering whipping out the Cipro or the Phosphomycin or other things, it's worth just taking a bit of pause, doing an in-out catheter potentially in the office to get the cleanest specimen possible uh, to know that you really are chasing that uh, resistant bug. In terms of other uh, red flags, I think just think back to uh, your you know, suspected urothelial cancer things. I think if someone has really irritated, avoiding symptoms with some hematuria that is culture negative, that's different from the patient that has UTI symptoms that's culture negative and then also think about uh, risk factors such as you know smoking previous exposures to dyes previous radiation and those sorts of things I would also say with recurrent UTIs when there's a catheter involved that makes things extremely difficult and where possible try to change the catheter as a priority uh, rather than cycling through antibiotics Matt, that's fantastic. There's some really practical tips there. Um, I'm sure our listeners have all been able to take something home from this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is all that we have time for. But Matt, you have kindly agreed to record another episode on lower urinary tract symptoms in males, which I'm really looking forward to. And I would encourage all of our listeners to make sure that they check in for our next podcast episode and have a listen to that as well. So thanks, Matt, for joining me today. Thanks, Christina. Pleasure. The Good GP is produced and edited by the team at RACGPWA. If you've got any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, please feel free to email us at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.